this morning. Uh, is the second sermon in the Love series. Uh, we started uh, the Love series last week. Uh, this is our summer of love here at Cross Point. As we've deemed it, we were going to do the black lights and black light posters and disco balls, but we thought better of it. But it is the Love series and it is the second sermon uh, in the summer of love thing. Um, today we're going to be talking about love and our schedules. Um, I know that it's probably a room full of people who really feel like their schedules aren't jam-packed with a lot of craziness. You got it straight. Um, but it might be good to talk about love and our schedules this morning. I stole my sermon title uh, from the modern-day theologian and local radio hostess, Delilah. Uh, <laughs> Slow down and love someone is the title of the sermon. I hope it's not the best part of the sermon, but I am pleased with the title. So um, uh, let's pray and uh, begin. God, we count it a huge, huge privilege to come before you today. God, I thank you um, for a bunch of uh, very uh, talented musicians with a heart for the gospel that just led us in a wonderful time of corporate worship. I thank you for the preparation of our hearts that that is. And I pray uh, that as we open your word this morning, I pray against hard-heartedness. I pray against blindness. I pray against um, the very stubborn uh, ways that we sometimes have where we got the way that we live and the way that we go and we like it our way and we're very stubborn to, to make any changes. And, and I just pray this morning that as we lay open this word and uh, as you expose your truth to us, that we would respond appropriately. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be very attentive uh, to your word this morning. God, we count it, again, a huge privilege to be here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If y'all open up to John chapter 13. This is where we started uh, last week in our, in our love series again. And we're going to be focusing on verses 31 through 35 with a special focus on 34 and 35, which will kind of um, springboard us over to look at some things about the Spirit. So John 13, 31 through 35 says this. When he had gone out, he being Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, we began to look at this love last week, and I don't know, that just as part kind of caught me last week, and that's what is kind of guiding where we're going this morning. If he says love just as I love, um, we've got to think, you know, what is that? And um, my mind doesn't immediately go to the things of the Scripture. I mean, I sat down, and this is how my brain worked when I was looking at it. It's like, um, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Um, <laughs> love is a battlefield. Endless love. What's love got to do with it? I will always love you. I'm going to all these cultural things about love, which are very different from what we're talking about here in the Bible. This love that we're talking about is agape love. It's very decisive and it's very specific. And it comes in the form of a command from Jesus. He's saying there's a new commandment. Love one another just as I've loved you. And so we're looking at this just as. What is the just as? How did he love them? Uh, and what we're looking at this morning is Jesus loved us with his schedule. Within the schedule that Jesus had, there were many different ways that he loved, but specifically this morning, we're going to look at his availability and his constant love uh, with his schedule. John Stott comments that all of our love is but a reflection of his and a response to it. I'll say that again. All of our love is but a reflection of the love with which God has loved us and a response to it. And so I want you all to go with me. I, I, I picture the disciples saying, okay, he just commanded us. This is a new deal. Judas is gone. This is kind of like the first church sitting here. And he's commanding us love just as I have loved. And I'm sure that in their minds they're saying, okay, what has he done? You know, they're, they're having to look back and say, well, he says just as I have loved. So they're going to look at how Jesus loved them. And uh, so in their thinking, I, I want us to kind of do the same thing and go back with them and trace through just a few things even in, in the same book in John um, on how it was that Jesus loved them. So we go to John chapter 1. You can go there if you'd like. I'm going to be, there's a couple things I definitely want you to look at, but I'm going to be going kind of fast. But in John chapter 1, at the very beginning, 
the first thing that we see in how Jesus loved with his schedule uh, was that he showed up. He was there. This seems so obvious. It seems like it doesn't even need to be said, but Jesus showed up. He was there. He did not take care of business from afar. He showed up and he dwelled with the people. So that's probably one of the first things that they're going to think, okay, if we're going to love as Jesus loved, well, Jesus showed up. The second thing comes in chapter 2. Oh, and um, yeah, okay, second thing comes in chapter 2. He gets invited to a wedding and he goes. What uh, was your response the last wedding invitation you got in the mail? Did you open it up? Oh, honey, so-and-so's getting married. What a blessing that they've invited us to take part in this very special day. What an opportunity to love them. No, we get wedding invitations in the mail and it's like, oh, what, what day is it? <laughs> get the schedule out. Let's, let's put it on the schedule. What day is it? That whole weekend shot. We can't do anything that weekend because we've got a wedding to go to. People are getting married. And then if you're in your mid-20s or your early 30s, and it's late spring, it's like your 10th wedding invitation that you've gotten. Everyone's gotten married. By the 10th one, you are not opening it up and saying, oh, what an opportunity to show love on a very special day for this couple. We're just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. They're getting married too, and it's a bad <laughs> attitude that we have. So not only does he get a wedding invitation, and he goes to the wedding and just mail him a gift, um, he, uh, <laughs> he says, uh, he goes there, and he does his first, the first of his miracles. He, he turns water into wine. And what Scripture says is this is a manifestation of His glory, a manifestation of the love that He is, not just that He does. And it's His presence. He's dwelling among the people. In chapter 4, go ahead and turn to chapter 4. We'll read this, um, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus is leaving Judea, and he's going to Galilee. There's a schedule. He's leaving one place, going to another place. He's, he's not just wandering around. He's, he is going somewhere. And he had to pass through Samaria, which is interesting. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Sychar. Not sure how to say it, but we'll say it like that. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And listen to how Jesus was here. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is on a journey. He's in the middle of what we might call a very busy schedule, and he's weary. He's not just in the middle of something. He's tired, and he's by a well. And the interesting thing is that the lady, she didn't even ask for help. She's not bothering him with help. She asks a question, which is a telling question, and Jesus sees it as an opportunity to show love to this lady. How easy would it have been uh, for him to say, um, lady, just give me a drink. I'm the son of God, I'm kind of busy, I've got things to do, zip it with the questions and please give me a drink. He could have very easily said that. Us in the same situation, we may have said something similar to that. But he, uh, he, gives an op- he uses it as an, as an opportunity to show her love and to be patient, even when he's weary, even when he's tired in the middle of something. Chapter 9, five chapters, scoot over. I originally had like 23 examples of how he did this, and Ben told me that might be a little bit long for a Sunday morning sermon. So we're jumping over five chapters to nine. We're just going to look at the first verse. This is Jesus, Jesus healing a man born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The story tells us he goes on to heal the man born blind. Jesus didn't have a three o'clock with the woman at the well and a four o'clock with the man born blind. It was as he passed by. He was even weary at times. As he passed by, he does this. So it's interesting. He heals the man born blind as he passed by. And like most of the other ways that, uh, that he has shown love, it wasn't on his schedule. It was his schedule. That's what I want us to see this morning. It wasn't something that was on his schedule. It was his schedule. And he loves uh, wholeheartedly. Look at verses 35 through 38 in that same chapter. Just there towards the end of that chapter. This guy that Jesus had healed... We find this out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Uh, Had Jesus not been willing to slow down as he passed by, heal the man born blind physically, heal his spiritual blindness, and then when he's cast out of the city and kind of becomes a reject, God hears about it and goes and finds the guy. This all started off as an, as he passed by. He was in the middle of his regular day, and this was what we would probably call an interruption. And in the middle of this, as he passed by, we see he heals his physical blindness, he heals his spiritual blindness, and he seeks him out when he finds out that he's suffering outside of the city because he's been rejected about what he said about Jesus. Um, uh, it says, I mean, he heard they cast him out, and having found him, Jesus went and found him. In the very next chapter, um, had Jesus not done that, the guy would not have worshipped him for the first time that day. Get that. Had Jesus not done that and loved him in that way, the guy would have never said, oh, I believe, and then worship Jesus. In the very next chapter, Jesus, in chapter 10, says, I am the good shepherd, and I keep watch over my sheep. In his journey, as he's going along with a schedule of love, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and I keep watch over my sheep. And think about Peter. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about Peter by the lakeside, and Peter had, you know, um, said that, no, he'd gotten scared of the little servant girl and said, no, I don't know who Jesus is. That now they're by the lakeside. Peter flung himself to the water, flung himself Christward, and they're there, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. If we're going to love the way that Christ loved, we're, he gave us this example with the man born blind. He's the good shepherd. He, he, he watches his sheep. He commands us to love in the same way. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. And he gives us this perfect example. So remember, right now, this is what the disciples are thinking. Well, he, he showed up. He, he went to the wedding. He didn't mail the gift. He met with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, the well. He, the whale. The well. He, uh, he uh, healed the man born blind. He sought him out. These are things that are going through their mind as they're hearing the command, love just as I've loved. Um, so what can we gather from these passages about how Jesus loved? Jesus did not have a lot of things on his schedule that were just loving. Hear this. His schedule was love because he is love. Even when he's got a lot to do, he is love. Even when he is in a hurry, he is love. Even when he is weary, he is love. Now make this transition with me. The reason that is is because God is love. That's something that I think we've all heard a bajillion times. God is love. We use it out of context in a lot of ways, but we know that God is love. What does that mean? Well, it means more than he is just loving. If God is love, then love is the very essence of his being. When we hear God is love, that doesn't just mean God did some loving things, and we can cite those things, and he, was, he did loving things. God is love. It's the very essence of the being of who God is. Love's origin only exists in God. There is no real love outside of God. God is love. So it's far more than something he does, and Jesus is a manifestation of God in the flesh. So when Jesus says, love just as I have loved, he's saying more than just to make sure that there are loving things on your schedule. Rather, in fact, he's saying that who we are changes. He's not saying, add a subcategory to your iCal or your Outlook schedule or whatever, make it in red writing, because it's love, and then do a lot of that. It's not a new subcategory on our schedules. Love is the essence of who we are in Christ. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but I want you all to see that. Jesus' schedule was love. He didn't just have loving things on his schedule. He calls us to love just as he loved. And the very essence of our being is just the same as it is with uh, the love that exists between Jesus and God because of the work of the Spirit, which is what we're going to look at here in a minute. So it's not a new subcategory on your schedule. Oh, well, we're not loving enough. Let's add it on there with all the other stuff. Adding something to the schedules right now might, be, might not be the best idea. He's saying um, to make sure that there are loving things, not just to have loving things on your schedule, but who we are changes, and the change is reflected in our actions of love. So the actions are seen, but the change is in the heart. We're new people. You might say that actions of love only flow from a person of love. True love can only come from a person of love who's been changed by God into that. Love is the essence of a person who has been changed by God to be used by God for his glory and according to his purposes. So here's the transition. 
One of my biggest fears in, in ministry is being spent in all the wrong directions. Huge fear of mine. Uh, I've got other friends in ministry, student ministry especially, and the summer's over and they're like, okay, I am absolutely exhausted. We've gone to four camps. We've had three um, retreats, 18 pizza parties, um, uh, 50 swim parties. I'm hanging with them all the time and I'm tired. It's the end of the summer. I, I feel like I'm just spent and I don't, I don't see anybody loving Jesus anymore than they did before the summer started. And I'm confused. Why does this happen? We could so easily be spent in the wrong directions. That's my biggest fear as a minister. We've been having um, meetings with the youth dads and saying, okay, let's not drop the ball with our students here. How can we most effectively minister to them and not be spent in the wrong direction and then set an example for them to go and be spent in the wrong direction in everything they do? How do we make sure that doesn't happen? We've had meet- we had a meeting last Wednesday till 10 o'clock with youth dads making sure that doesn't happen. It's one of my biggest fears, but it's also one of my biggest fears for this body. Um, I don't want the people of God, the bride of Christ, to be spent in all the wrong directions. That's not God's design. Um, I've seen it with the youth. A lot of the youth that I know go to school, like during the school year, they go to school at 7 o'clock in the morning, 7.30, whatever, and they're in school all day. Then they have extracurricular activities afterwards until 7, 7.30. Uh, and then they have like three, four hours of homework at night. And so that makes for about a 15-hour day on the average, and that doesn't count anything social or any jobs that they might have. It's insane. It is absolutely insane when I look at some of the youth schedules. And, it, and this has to do with adults, too, because most of you were youth who had a similar thing, and that's how we produce, like, workaholics and things like that as adults because um, you're already putting in 70 and 80-hour work weeks um, by the time you're done with school. So they, there's some, one of the things I've seen is in a lot of the schools, um, many of the schools, in fact, uh, at the end of the year, there's these awards assemblies, and the most the highest honor award is given to the student who played football, basketball, baseball, ran track, and got straight A's, and was an academic decathlon, and honor society, and everything else. And I was sitting at my brother's graduation, and they were naming, the, va- the valedictorian came up, and they were saying, here's his list of accomplishments. And they talked for like 10 minutes. And I just leaned over to Lindsay, I was like, he must be tired. He must be exhausted. <laughs> because we're being spent in these crazy direct. I mean, yeah, he accomplished a lot, but it's very easy to be spent in the wrong direction. It's very easy. It's a huge fear that I have for myself, for this body. Um, some statistics. Ben read that very mean and cold quote from this book last week. I won't read that same one. I'm not dragging your teenagers around town with their tongues hanging out to keep up with their overachieving, theologically illiterate friends to gather trophies in the basement for dust. That was last week. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to mention it this week. This is um, <laughs> this guy, Christian Smith. Uh, th- they do all this data. They do, you know, Barna Group ha- does all this research. He says, religion seems to become rather compartmentalized and backgrounded in the lives and experiences of most U.S. teenagers. So what he's saying is everything in the life of a teenager is oftentimes compartmentalized. They've got school, they've got work, they've got social things, and then there's this religion thing. And he's saying the problem is, is the religion thing, since everything's compartmentalized, takes its own compartment, usually gets thrown to the back. He says this compartmentalization is completely understandable in light of the minimal weight given to spiritual matters. He explains, this is not surprising. It simply reflects the fact that there is very little built-in religious content or connection in the structure of most U.S. adolescents' daily schedules and routines. Most U.S. teenagers' lives are dominated by school and homework. Many are involved in sports and other clubs besides. Most teens also spend lots of, times, lots of time with their friends, just hanging out or doing things like going to the mall, the Crossroads Mall, or bowling at DBs. In addition, most teens devote a great deal of life to watching television and movies, emailing or instant messaging friends, listening to music, consuming other electronic media. I like that, consuming electronic media. Boyfriends and girlfriends sometimes consume a lot of time and attention as well. And then Vody Bakken makes the comment, it seems that there are a few things that we deem more important for our children than growing in grace. I don't need the statistics to know that that's going on. I absolutely see it in many of your faces. I see it in my face when I look in the mirror. Um, I hear it in your answers. I see a people who are tired, weary, faint-hearted. Um, consider for yourself, what, what, what's the normal answer you get when you ask, hey, how you doing? If they don't say fine and they actually answer you, what's the normal answer you get lately? Tired. I'm exhausted. I'm spent. I mean, the weekend's here, but it wasn't any rest. 
I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I'm just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. That's what I'm hearing all the time. I was looking back as I'm preparing the sermon. I'm like, what do I say? I usually say I'm trying to keep my head above water. That's kind of my thing. So, so this is very <laughs> convicting personally. But here's the thing. Um, it is, it's hard um, because the Bible tells us it's going to be. I know that you guys are being spent in a jillion different directions. The Bible tells us this. The Bible says that the God of this world is Satan. <laughs> Lowercase g, God. Okay, some of you are like, what? The God of this world is Satan? This is crazy. I'm out. No, it... <laughs> In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says that the God of this world is trying to blind the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you live in a world whose God, lowercase g, is Satan. This is not our home. Our home is an eternal dwelling. Sometimes we forget that, especially in the midst of a crazy schedule. But we live in a world whose God, lowercase g, is Satan. And he does everything he can to blind you, to deceive you, to keep you from doing what God would have you do. That's his goal. And there's no limits on that. He's not like, uh, I could use their kids' schedules, but that might be a little morally wrong. He doesn't have moral boundaries <laughs> at all. He's Satan. He's the father of lies. In him, there's no truth at all. He'll use anything he can to distract you and to make sure that you're spent in all the wrong directions. Um, it also says that one of the things we experience while we're here on earth is that we're con- there's a constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. Um, a constant battle. So the flesh keeps the spirit from trying to do what it wants to do, and the spirit is against the flesh from keeping what it wants to do, and it's a battle. So when I'm sitting here talking about schedules, trust me, I'm not sitting here th- thinking, oh, we are so ignorant, this should be an easy fix. No, it's not an easy fix. God tells us we live in a world whose God is Satan. He wants to deceive us and distract us. He has no moral standard, so he'll do whatever he can. And in the middle of that, our flesh and our spirit are at odds with each other, trying to keep the other from doing what it wants to do. So it's not easy. Um, but we can be spent in a, a million different directions. I'm thinking about how do we gently communicate this to you know, families that are growing and families that, you know, people who have a new child and they're like, man, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm, I, can't, I don't even sleep anymore. I haven't slept for four days. I got a new kid. Or those families that they have one kid and then they have two kids or three kids or eight kids or whatever. And all of a sudden you're, you don't have just two schedules you're trying to keep straight. You've got like 10 or eight or six and there's schedules everywhere and you're trying to figure it out. This is hard. There's a new statistic. I'm not real big on statistics. I sure sound like I am, but there's a new statistic um, that, uh, and it's really sad, is that these empty nesters who've been married for like 25 years or whatever, there's a, there's a large number of them currently that are, those marriages are ending in divorce. Because what's happening is they spend 18 years or more, depending on how many children they have, just getting their children to the different places they gotta be. And at the end of the, the time that their kids are at home, they go off to college and you see these two people sitting there in their house looking at each other like, I don't even know you. We don't have anything to do. We spent two decades just carting kids around to different events, and it's ending in divorce. Most of them would say they're falling out of love. The overwhelming force isn't there anymore. It's very sad. Uh, my wife and I were at dinner the other night. This is sad and funny. We're at dinner the other night. Um, things can be sad and funny. It's okay. Um, and uh, we're sitting there, and Lindsay goes, look at that. I was like, what? I look over, and I'm not kidding. If this is your parents, I apologize ahead of time. But <laughs> there's a couple sitting there, 50s, 60s. I'm not kidding. They're at a dinner table. It's only two of them. He has his novel, reading his novel. She has her novel, reading her novel. And they didn't speak a word to each other the whole time we were there. They're just reading their novels. How's dinner going? You enjoying each other's company? I mean, there's this thing where it's like, you, I, would, I, was, I was imagining, maybe they had kids, maybe they're just late in life, and maybe they go a lot of different directions, and now they sit across from each other at the dinner table reading novels. It's bizarre. I'd never seen anything like it. His was a Western, hers was a romance. Um, <laughs> so the application. So we look at these things. We've walked with the disciples and we've seen what Jesus does. We've seen the truth that we live in a world where there's a battle going on. It is not an easy fix. So we've got to ask, what is the application? And what do I do? Okay, I get that. What do I do? Understanding what it is that we do, the only way that we'll get to the right answer there is understanding who we are. 
the only way to understand the right thing to do is to understand who you are as a new creation in Christ. Turn to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8. Paul's writing this letter to the churches of Galatia, and we call it a hunch, we might be able to identify with them because they were tired and weary, and they were starting to kind of slack off on some things, and what was happening is their priorities were beginning to reflect their weary nature. The priorities were kind of changing, and they were a reflection of how tired and just worn out and spent everybody was. And this is what Paul um, encourages them with. Verse, uh, Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. Now stop there. Do not be deceived. We just talked about who the deceiver is, right? The God of this world wants to deceive you. Don't be deceived. So he, Paul's not saying deception's not a fear, just you know, push it to the side. He's saying, I know you're trying to be deceived every day. Deception is creeping in in a million different ways. And his, his encouragement is, don't be deceived. And then he says, God, will, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. For some of you, that's falling on you like a ton of bricks. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. Where are you spending your time? I mean, when I read that, I thought, I mean, I was t- terrified. I'm thinking, where am I being spent? God's not going to be mocked. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows. Now listen to that, verse 8. Did y'all see that in verse 8? The, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Corruption, eternal life. Corruption, eternal life. So here's the big application point. Y'all ready? So to the Spirit. So to the Spirit. If you leave here and there's one little thing you remember from this whole sermon, it's so to the Spirit. The people of God must sow to the Spirit. Our schedules become all jacked up and we become weary and fruitless when we're sowing to the flesh. That's the difference. Sow to the Spirit. Don't sow to the flesh. Here's the difference between the two. John Piper um, has a great... um, definition for sowing to the Spirit. And what I want to do is I want to use that definition to explain what it is, but then I want to twist it a little bit and use that definition to explain what sowing to the flesh is as well. He says this. I'm going to say it twice, so listen close both times. Sowing to the Spirit means recognizing where the Spirit aims to produce some luscious fruit for the glory of God and dropping the seed of your resources in there. Easy enough, right? Let me read it again. Sowing to the Spirit means recognizing where the Spirit aims to produce some luscious fruit for the glory of God and dropping the seed of your resources in there. The Spirit is always doing things for the glory of God. God has a plan over the course of all redemptive history. This world that's created was created for His glory. The people that are being redeemed are people being redeemed for His glory. Think all the way back to the beginning of the world. He made man and woman in the image of who? Himself. And then he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's plan is to fill the earth with his glory. You are image bearers of God. And so the plan is that you go fill, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, fill the earth with his glory. And he promises again and again throughout scripture that he will accomplish his purposes. His purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. His purpose is to put his glory on display. He will accomplish his purposes. So the spirit is, is always doing things to produce some luscious fruit for the glory of God. And what this is saying is that when you see the Spirit doing that, be spent in that direction. Use your time and your energy and your creativity and your prayer moments, your prayer times. Use your, um, your ideas and your brainstorming. Use that to be spent in the direction where you see the Holy Spirit doing things for the glory of God because that's consistent with what God's plan has been from the get-go until the end of time. It's for His glory. When you see the Holy Spirit doing things, now what are the fruits of the Spirit? We all know the song. We all know it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we see things like that going on, then it's like, I'm going to be spent in that direction. That might be as easy as you see someone who has been very patient through a very trying time, and you write them a letter of encouragement, saying, I, I love seeing that God is using you, and the patience that you showed in that was a fruit of the Spirit, and that's loving. And I want to encourage you in that. It might be that simple. You can text them. We don't even have to write letters anymore. It takes like two seconds. Um, now, interestingly, I want to use that same definition to talk about what it is to sow to the flesh and what the difference is between the two. Let's use the same definition. Sowing to the flesh means recognizing where the flesh aims to produce some poisonous fruit for the glory of itself and dropping your resources in there. Sowing to the flesh means recognizing where the flesh aims to produce some poisonous fruit for the glory of itself and dropping your resources in there. Now look at Galatians 5. It's the previous chapter to the one we've been in in Galatians 6. Galatians 5 says this. Look at 5, 16 through 24. It says that the works of the flesh are evident. And it's saying, don't pour yourself out in that direction. Because it leads to what? You sow to the flesh, you'll reap what? Corruption. Not eternal life. And so this is saying the works of the flesh are evident. I want to read these to you and just think about your schedules. Think about what fills them up. Verse 19, Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do those things, you're sowing to the flesh and you reap corruption, not the, the kingdom of God. Now when we read those, it might be, you might be like, like the big ones, you know, sexual immorality, sorcery. I'm not a sorcerer, I'm fine. <laughs> There's other things in there than those. When I read that list, I'm very aware that everyone goes, sexual immorality, sorcery, no, nah, I'm I think I'm okay, dude. Thanks for the message. Um, there's lots of things in there. Division, dissension, fits of anger, rivalries. There's a lot of deacon bodies that sound like that. Rivalries, dissension, division, anger. That's why we have as many church buildings as we do in Greenville. People don't know how to deal with a difference of opinions. They just divide. Then there's anger. Then there's jealousy. Then there's fits of anger. I mean, that's not how the people of God are to be characterized. This is interesting because I was trying to think of a real practical example of, of sowing to the flesh and how we might do it without even doing it intentionally. And I was really brokenhearted when I thought about this because I was really convicted. Sowing to the flesh. It is not right. <laughs> it is not right that the entertainment for the people of God is watching the product of the corruption that comes from others who have sown to the flesh. Listen to that again. It's not right that our entertainment is made up of other people who have sown to the flesh and they're reaping corruption and that their lives are a total nightmare and a total train wreck and we love being entertained by it as the people of God. That is not right. Think about the dramas on TV that you watch. Think about the talk shows. Humorously, my wife said, well, the news isn't like that. Bull! The news is as bad as anything. So-and-so did this today. They're going to be in jail for eight years. We're like, yeah, what else is on, on the news, you know? And um, our entertainment should not, that, what's happening is there are people who are sowing to the flesh and they're reaping corruption, and we make movies about it and dramas on TV about it, and we fill up the news about it, and we read about it online, and all of a sudden, that's how we are entertained. That's how we, that's our pastime. They're sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption, but if that's our entertainment, we're sowing to the flesh, and we will reap corruption from that. That's, I haven't figured out a solution other than chunking my TV out on the front lawn on that. That's, that's very convicting for me. So we should not be entertained by the corruption of other people who sow to the flesh. Here's what I want us to see. Sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the Spirit. If we sow to the Spirit, if we sow to the Spirit, we are fulfilling the command to love just as Christ loved us. We're being spent in the way that He was spent. If we sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh, we are loving just as He loved us. 
So you hear that and you might be like, okay, I see that. I see the life of Jesus. I see the, the struggles that are always going to be there. And I see that I'm supposed to sow to the Spirit. So what do I do? I've got a jacked up schedule. We go in a jillion different directions. What do I do? Do I just revamp the whole schedule? Do I tell my kids that they can't play t-ball anymore? What do I do? For some of us, if we respond properly to this truth, our schedules are going to have to change. For some of us, most of us probably, there's going to have to be something. If there's like five minutes for family and zero minutes for Jesus in the day, then there's a problem. For some of us, we'll have to change some things. Probably the thing, though, that I am most excited about sharing with you this morning, I am so excited that I get to tell you this, stoked even, um, love is not the product of a lovingly efficient schedule. Like, don't create your subcategories, put them in red letters, and try to do at least five things a week that are loving. That's legalism. That's not a solution to the problem of us being spent in all the wrong directions. Love is not the product of a lovingly efficient schedule. Love is not the product of the flesh at all. What is love? A fruit of the Spirit. That's great news. Now we're going to look at why. The f- love is a fruit of the Spirit. We've already mentioned it this morning, but now we get to see what is really good news for a room full of people who are daily bombarded with the opportunity to be spent in the wrong direction. Love is not a product of anything of the flesh. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Turn back to John 13. Oh, this is exciting. You just wait. John 13. That same commandment that we have in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Let's hear it again and then look what comes after it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All the people that you encounter in your crazy schedule, by this they'll know that you're my disciples is that you love one another. Much like the woman at the well, much like the man born blind as he passed by, the people you are engaging in your schedules, they won't know that you're a disciple of God if it just looks the exact same and, and there seems to be no difference in your personhood and, and your, who you are as a new creation in Christ. They'll know you by your love for one another. Now look at John 14, same, same if you have ESV, it's just the next column over. John 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What was the new commandment? Love. So Jesus is saying, if you love, this isn't, so this isn't just a love to people, this is love to Jesus and love to people. He's saying, if you love me, you're going to love other people. And in the loving of other people, just as I loved you, you're loving me. So we can't say, I really love Jesus, but I hate most people. We can't say that. That doesn't work there. And I will ask the Father, this is so key, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and he will be in you. Turn to 1 John 4, 12 through 3. John, is, this is the same John writer. This is the epistle in 1 John 4, 12 through 13. It says this. This is beautiful. No one has ever seen God. 1 John 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Feel the weight of that. God's, God is love. Love exists initially in God. Jesus is a manifestation of God. He's that love in the flesh. And where does it go from there? It says the love's perfected in us. Yeah, he wants to use you to show that love. That's why he says the new commandment, love everyone just the same way I loved you. But how? Verse 13 By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. He has given us of his spirit. We are new creations in Christ. As children of God, we have been commanded to love and we've been given the spirit so that we can obey the command. He doesn't say, hey, love, good luck. Hard world out there. He says, love, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm giving you the Spirit as an advocate, a counselor, a helper. And you will be able to obey this command because I'm giving you the Spirit. It's not about doing something different. It's about being someone different because of the way he has made you newness in Christ. We have been commanded to love and have been given the gift of the Spirit so we can obey the command. By the Spirit, we are brought into fellowship. 
experiencing the love that is between the Father and the Son. The love always existed between the Father and the Son. By the Spirit, we're brought into the same fellowship. We're made new people. You're buried in baptism and raised to walk in what? The newness of life. You're a new creation. Put on the new self. Comes right before it says, set your mind on the things above. Don't get wrapped up in the world. Love is not just something we do. Just as it was with God, just as it was with Jesus, love is the very essence of our being. It's who we are. Not just something we do. You can try as hard as you want to just do more loving things and you will fail miserably if it is not with the understanding that we are new creations in Christ. Love is the very essence of our being, just like it was with Jesus, just like it was with God. And it is so by the Spirit. That's really good news. We're going to look at this. What we have seen as the essence of Jesus is now our essence because of the gift of the Spirit. Turn back to that Galatians passage. I should have told you to keep your finger in it, but I didn't. So turn back there. Galatians. And we won't be turning anymore. Look at what Galatians 5.25 says. Galatians 5.25 says this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It means that He tells you to love just as He loved, but He's given you the gift of the Spirit so that you have new life in Christ. People of God, we're new creations in Christ. It's not just try hard to love. It's the essence of our being. It says if we live by the Spirit, walk by it. This does not mean you better be loving so that you can try to be a son of God. It's who you are. It's your being. It's the very essence of who you are is love, not just a subcategory on our schedules. As we pass by people, as we are weary doing whatever we're doing, we are a people whose essence is love. It's who you are. It's not something you do to try and become something else. Fish, swim. Do they are. Dogs, bark, birds, fly. Children of God, love and so do the Spirit. If we sow to the Spirit, we're fulfilling the command to love, just as Christ loved. So I want to end with the encouragement that Paul gives to the churches here in Galatia. Remember, they're tired, and they're weary, they're slacking off, their priorities are beginning to reflect their weary nature. And this is what Paul says at the very end. Galatians 6, verses 9-10. through 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do not become weary of doing good. So what happens if we become weary of doing good? This says don't. I agree. But what happens if we do? When we become weary of doing good because we're spent in so many wrong directions, what happens is an opportunity to do good comes up, and we don't see it as an opportunity. We see it as an interruption. We see it as an inconvenience. We don't see it as an opportunity. We don't embrace it. We open up the invitation and say, oh, what is this? By the way, the same response that I've seen people have for weddings, I've seen them have the same response for funerals. It's an opportunity to love, but hey, it wasn't on the schedule, man. Oh, gosh, what are we going to do here? Do not become weary of doing good. That's the exhortation. That's the encouragement this morning. Don't be deceived. Do not grow weary of doing good. Here's what happens. We see it as an inconvenience and opportunity if we do. Um, this will be a confession to the whole body with lights on my face. Wonderful. Um, this, this last week, um, I had an opportunity. Benevolence ministry at this church is the hardest ministry um, we have. It is so confusing. It's difficult. Anybody can walk through the front doors of this church building and they don't have a place to stay. They don't have any food. They're tired. They're weary. They need help. Sometimes their life is a complete mess. And any time that they walk through those doors, it can take three, four hours out of the day trying to just get them set up with food or a hotel room or something. We've got to talk to them. We've got to see who they are. We can't just throw some money at them and say, go, i got stuff to do. It takes time. Hardest ministry, I think, that we have here. There's lots of challenges in ministry, but that's one of the hardest ones I've seen in five years. I had an opportunity to sit on that back pew this week for an hour and a half with two recovering meth addicts. Hour and a half. They came in. Um, 
she was really down on her luck, didn't have a place to stay, uh, had been clean for six months. And we sat on that back pew, and I got an hour and a half of uninterrupted time to share the gospel with them. I get to tell them about Jesus for an hour and a half. They didn't have anywhere to go. They sat right there. And I got to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And we talked about Paul. And we talked about, they were just like, man, what do I do? I don't have a place to stay. I've been slandered. People are saying bad things about me. I don't have any friends. All these things. I'm like, oh, look at Paul. He was shipwrecked, beaten up, sleepless nights. He was hungry. But guess what he said? God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. And I got to sit on that back pew back there and sit with him for an hour and a half and explain why the gospel is good news and how Jesus offers a love that's complete and lacking in nothing. And in their weakness, at this point in their life where the easiest thing to do would be the couple of dollars they have, go get some meth, get stoned, and forget about the problems. That's the easiest thing for them to do right now. I told them, look, his strength is made perfect in your weakness and he offers eternal life. Don't go and sow to the flesh and do that. Sow to the spirit. Reap eternal life. And I sat for an hour and a half and got to tell them about Jesus. Wonderful, right? We got him set up with a hotel room. Got him, uh, I think we got him some stuff for food. They left. I went in and like Rhonda always asks after a random weird benevolence meeting, how'd it go? You know what I said? That took almost two hours. I gotta go work on this sermon. That's what I said. I viewed it as an interruption. I viewed it as an inconvenience. Why? Being spent in the wrong direction. Not joyful about sowing to the Spirit. That was my response. Hi, I'm a minister on staff, and I just did that this week. I walked into Rhonda, and I said, she said, how'd it go? I didn't say, oh, what a joy to be just blessed with an opportunity in the middle of the day to sow to the Spirit and to share the gospel with these people and encourage them in Christ. I said, well, they got a place to stay. That took about an hour and a half, two hours. i got to go work on my sermon on not doing what I just did. As we live in the world and the flesh wages war against the spirit and the world does all it can to fill our schedules, we must cling to God's promises. What are his promises? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That spirit that he's given us that's in you is greater than the little g God of this world. You have what you need to get it straight and be spent in the right direction. You're not helpless. If you say, I'm helpless, my hands are tied, I can't do anything, that's sowing to the flesh. You have what you need. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What else do we have? You are a new creation in Christ whose essence is love and self-sacrifice. By the work of the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ, by that work, by that, the world has been crucified to you and you have been crucified to the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to you. You have the Spirit. You have what you need to keep things straight and not always have to say, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Life kind of stinks all the time, and I don't know why. You have what you need. It's a very sobering truth. It is appropriate for us to end our morning standing at the foot of the cross. Just imagine standing at the foot of the cross, reflecting on the life of Jesus, just like the disciples did, and the love with which he loved us. It was undeserved love, it was perfect love, and it was self-sacrificial love. If our schedules are so busy that there is zero opportunity for self-sacrifice, it's backwards. That's too much sowing to the flesh and not to the spirit. Hear that again. If our schedules are so busy that something comes up, an opportunity to do good for the glory of God, and we see it as an interruption, and we don't have time for self-sacrificial love, that's not a right response to love just as I have loved. John Stott has a great observation. He says, no one has been to the cross and seeing the immeasurable and unmerited, unmerited love displayed there, no one who's been there and seen that can go back to a life of selfishness. See, we can sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. We should also be able to sing, I once was selfish, but now I love. It's the same thing. It's the same act of the Spirit that he gives us as a gift with the command to love just as he loved. For some of us, um, our schedules are a mockery to God. Do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. For some of us, our schedules are a mockery to God. We think that we can sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. Doesn't work like that. We cannot sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. We have become so busy by worldly standard that when the opportunity to love and do good arises, we do not see it as an opportunity, but an interruption 
and an inconvenience. We must remember that this is not our home and daily boast. In the cross of Christ by which we have been crucified to the world and the world to us, we must remember the loving words of Christ that tell us that the flesh is of no avail. Every morning we must stand at the foot of the cross considering the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and ask him to bless our day so that we might love just as he loved. So to the Spirit, daily thanking God that from this great and undeserved gift of the Spirit that we reap eternal life. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Pray with me. God, your word indeed is a very sharp two-edged sword. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you promise in the text that we looked at this morning, I pray that by the power of your spirit that those who are idle and need to be admonished, that it's happened. I pray that those who are faint-hearted and need to be encouraged, that that's happened. I pray that those who are weak that need to be shown patience, I pray that that's happened. God, we trust you completely. God, I beg you to allow us and give us the wisdom and discernment and insight as we look at what we're going to do each day to be able to be spent in the right direction, to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. God, there's not a person in this room, I can't imagine a person in this room saying, yes, I want to reap corruption. God, we desire eternal life. We desire a kingdom that is everlasting and eternal that awaits. We want to set our eyes on that. We want our minds to be transformed by the renewal um, towards that direction. We want to put on the new self. We want to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. God, I pray that you would help us with that. The response to this message is complicated. It's not just go home and change your schedule a little bit. It's a matter of understanding who we are as new creations in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the spirit. God, we love you and we praise you. I pray that as we go about our jobs and going to school and doing whatever we do, that people would know that we are your disciples because of the way that we love them. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.